Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. Today I am delighted to welcome, in addition to Ollie, who has joined us several times on the podcast before, two non-software guests, Ken Finnegan and John Klingen, who are the authors of the new book, Kubernetes Native Microservices with Quarkus and MicroProfile, published by Manning. So please could I ask everyone to introduce yourselves and also include an interesting fact about yourself. You want to go first, John? I'm a product manager at Red Hat. I focus a lot on microprofile and do some community work on Quarkus as well. And I've got just a a long history in Java EE, microprofile, that whole space going back to Sun Microsystems. And uh, I'm a software engineer for, oh, geez, 22, 23 years now, something like that. I work for Red Hat, uh, have done for the just over 10 years now. Prior to that, various banks and insurance companies in London and Europe I work for. Yeah, I kind of focus on Quarkus and less microprofile now, but doing a lot of observability stuff there. And I guess a fun fact, I like to research family history when I actually have time. <laughs> That's very exciting. Who is your most exciting family ancestor? Well, it's, it's not mine, but it's my wife's. She uh, likes to lord over me because she's uh, related to royalty in that far enough back, she's descended from the Plantagenets and therefore um, Charlemagne. There we go. Oh, fantastic. Oh. My fun fact <laughs> is I'm an amateur, definitely amateur photographer. And my family tree, I have an ancestor that signed the Articles of Confederation in the US, which is kind of the predecessor to like the... Bill of Rights or Declaration of Independence kind of stuff. So way back when. Very cool. Bar set high for fun facts today, Ollie. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm a technical lead at Software. I've been here for some years, not that many years, some years. I kind of work with customers on a variety of different projects and different scales. My fun fact, which I, I was quite happy with until until I just had those two, is that I've this most recent lockdown, I've become obsessed with bagels and baking bagels. So I'm just kind of like constant stream of bagels coming out of the kitchen, which is great apart from, it turns out, no one likes all of the seeds littering the house, but like flake off the bagels. Your um, ancestors will be able to look back and say, yes, my ancestor was Ollie the bagel maker. That's <laughs> awesome. Is it hard? It's something I've considered, because you have to boil them first, is that right? And then bake them. Yeah, it's not that hard. It's more steps than just making bread, which is my previous obsession. It's not that hard. There's just like a couple more steps and boiling is one of them. And they're just better if you let them prove for a really long time and make they rise really slowly. My, my wife started baking bagels maybe two or three months ago. And yeah, she after a couple of like not so great attempts, it got a lot better. And she's got the taste perfect, but she just finds it really hard to get it to look like a bagel from a store mass-produced manufactured bagels they don't look quite right i've already sidetracked this sorry yeah (laughs) so john and ken tell me how you came to write a book this is actually the fourth book i've written written three books previously john came to me oh maybe a year ago a little over a year ago and was like hey do you want to write a book on micro profile and i was crazy enough to say yeah sure it's been two years since i last wrote one wrote one let's do another one so that's how i got roped into doing this one I was contacted by someone from Manning and, you know, built a relationship there. And um, I have never written a book. This is my first one. And, you know, Ken's more of a software expert than I am because I'm I'm a product manager. Glad someone thinks so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been a software developer, you know, in the past, moved into product management. 
I've never written a book. And it's like, hey, uh, Ken, you want to you know, join in? We'll tag team. And this is my first book. Are you going to do it again? I do talk to a lot of first-time authors who are like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to do that again. <laughs> you know, I don't know. That's a good question. If it's the right topic, maybe. But it's a lot of work. You don't do it, in my opinion, like I, I don't do it for any kind of financial return because, you know, the return's probably not going to be huge because it's fairly specific. You know what I mean? There's not like mm-hmm. this huge US or, or worldwide audience for the type of stuff in, in the technical book space. It'll help pay for your Starbucks habit. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, and college. My daughter. Well, no, she's not even college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, might, it might pay for a textbook. Yeah. As for myself, having done this several times now, it's definitely the case of, and I joke about this with my wife in that it's somewhat like having kids in that right after you're like, no, I'm never having another one. And then two years later, it's like, oh yeah, I could potentially do this again. And then you get into it and then you're like, oh yeah, I don't really like doing this actually anymore. And then you kind of get to a point of wanting to get out and get done. And then once again, a couple of years later, it's like, oh yeah, I could write a book again. The cycle starts over again. So when's the next kid? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, so, no, no. Quarkers and micro profile, like, are these technologies that always go together or how would you use each of them individually? Well, I, I guess from my side, it's important to point out that micro profile is just one set of APIs that Quarkus provides. So you can certainly use Quarkus without using micro profile at all. There are certainly many aspects, probably more so on the reactive side that aren't necessarily part of MicroProfile that Quarkus offers. I would also say that they do go very well together, particularly for cloud environments in terms of providing things like health checks, metrics, endpoints, tracing. Basically, yeah, they can certainly be used separately, but there there are a lot of benefits to using MicroProfile or Quarkus, particularly for kube and cloud deployments. The only thing I guess I'll add to that is, you know, Quarkus is designed to run in containers and cloud environments and Kubernetes and MicroProfile is all about microservices, right? Enterprise Java microservices, you know, in that sense, they're very synergistic, right? They 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 go together well, but it's not required. I think that leads quite nicely onto what I, I wonder my questions is around a lot of a book and a lot of the focus of a book is around how you deploy these into Kubernetes. And I guess I'd be interested on, how well do you think it fits with things like containers as a service, but not on Kubernetes? And how much is it you get all of the benefits if you use it within a Kubernetes environment, but you can still get some outside of that? I definitely think it does. There are even advantages if you're just dealing with bare metal deployments as well. But certainly, as long as you're using containers, there are lots of benefits that the uh, ahead of time compilation that Quarkus brings offers by being able to strip away a whole bunch of stuff out of what's required in the memory at runtime. So even if you're just using containers and not using Kubernetes to orchestrate all those containers, you still get a reduction in memory usage, reduction in startup time, and all those extra benefits that Quarkus brings. So it's not strictly a cube-only thing. I think the cube-only aspect of Quarkus is more focused for things like health checks and integrating with metrics collection and things like that, which you need that orchestration platform to provide and orchestrate, basically. So we kind of plug into that a lot more, but the very kind of low level, what Quarkus does to reduce and improve things is definitely applicable to containers in general. 
you know, keep in mind, Red Hat has long been known as the Linux company, and it has grown into being a Kubernetes company. So when, when we talk about Kubernetes Java with with Quarkus, really it's to make sure that there's a focus on enabling, you know, enterprise Java in the context of Kubernetes. But obviously, containers is a step to Kubernetes, right? Like you mentioned, Ellie, it's, it's not necessarily a requirement. So... To get to Kubernetes, you first have to be very container <laughs> friendly. And so like one of the things that we do in containers, and this is a little bit into the feature stuff that also works in Kubernetes is you can deploy your application into a container, whether or not it's in Kubernetes and then remote develop, right? So I can be my IDE locally, wherever my container is, then I can just develop locally and, and pushes all, all the changes automatically to wherever the container is. So you don't have to constantly do these container redeploys. Remote development is what we call it. In reading but one of the things that comes up out a lot is that as, as well as the deployment environment being much better for, for containers and in more resource constrained environments or where you have lots of restarts or something similar the other benefits are around for development experience and learning from all of the cool stuff that's happened in go or in javascript or in anything else there how well does that fit with a team that's an existing team around we've got spring experience in java how much of it can you just shift straight over and how much do you need to kind of start again and learn the better the new techniques for kind of the cloud environment in general terms if a team has got experience with java and java e to an extent as well then they can for the most part just do a lift and shift of what they know to be able to deploy to the cloud with quarkus there will be uh, some things that they might need to be a bit more mindful of in terms of managing state is a little bit more difficult in a Kubernetes environment because you've got to worry about persistent volumes and things like that. And depending on how you're wanting to architect things, it might require some changes in that respect, but that would be something that applies to anything you do in the cloud and not something particularly to Quarkus, at least from my perspective. So one of the things I just finished and I, I pushed Optimating to get out there is the spring chapters. You know, there's a couple of things uh, to mention there. First is the whole idea of the spring compatibility APIs in Quarkus is to enable existing spring developers to pick up Quarkus and become productive with it pretty quickly. Right. And so whether or not they stay with the spring compatibility APIs or they move to, you know, the Java EE kind of APIs like JaxRS and so on is is up to the developer, right? So if you go to, you know, course.io slash blog, you'll see a bunch of user stories. And what you'll find is some say, you know, the APIs are similar enough between Spring and JaxRS that I'll just switch over to the, you know, to the JaxRS or Jakarta or Java EE kind of ecosystem APIs because the learning curve isn't really that bad. And that kind of comes through in the book. There's a lot of API mapping as basically the chapter takes, you know, the existing examples um, that are microprofile and, and, you know, this CDI and JaxRS and convert them all, all to Spring step by step. And the idea to show is that really there's a lot of correlation between the two, but also that they can run side by side, right? Because that it's doing a step at a time, you can see they, they run together. Now, other developers decide, and this comes through, I think it's in a WePro sto user story, where they just stuck with the Spring compatibility APIs, right? So it's up to the end developer to decide, you know, which way they want to go. But you can do both, and, and there's a lot of commonality between the two. Okay, so you get, you kind of have the gateway drug of using the Spring APIs to make it easy, and then you can either shift from there or stick with it, but you don't lose that mm -hmm. much by having the same back compatibility there. 
it's I wouldn't necessarily call it a gateway drug per se to to get people to move over. It really is up to the user because our plans are to maintain compatibility, right? So right now it's Spring 5, Spring Boot 2 compatible, I guess. And when Spring goes to 3 and Spring Boot 6 and, you know, then then we'll we'll update our APIs to be compatible. So it's it really is up to the end user in, in that case. It's just a matter of comfort. So yeah, it's something that's there rather than just to to hook you. Uh, yeah, it's there. Yeah, <laughs> related to that a little bit. Like what Quarkus seems really cool and just very lightweight and nice and modern and in a way that quite a lot of bits of Spring aren't. In the book, you mentioned not using something just because it's cool, and I'd be interested to know what the kind of what the sweet spot is. Where's that balance of it's cool versus it's something new to learn? How to make that trade off? I guess it's all about the pros and cons of what you need and what you have experience in. So for example, if you've been a spring shop for 20 years, then, well, spring hasn't been around quite that long, but close enough to 20 years. If you've been doing spring for that long, you might want to play with Quarkus and try things out, but is it realistically that you're going to change everything you've done over the last 15 odd years to spring? Probably not. Though Red Hat would certainly love you to, but we, we also appreciate that's not entirely realistic to expect everyone that uses Spring today to start using Quarkus tomorrow. So I think it depends on also what they're wanting to get out of it in terms of what requirements do they have for particular applications or microservices today and what they're looking to do tomorrow. Maybe there's an alignment that fits with trying out Quarkus for some new prototypes and POCs and seeing how it goes knowing that they are going to be moving to Kubernetes and wanting that kind of better integration down the road. Kind of all depends. Obviously, yeah, it's, we've only been around for, oh, crikey, two years now, John? Yeah, it's, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had to do a double think there. because Almost like, exactly. I think it was March 8th of yeah. 2019. Yeah, I, I remember us all huddled around a table in a room in Neuchâtel, Switzerland, trying to finish the release and get it public. So yeah, it's been around for two years. So it's still kind of new in terms of certainly not in JavaScript framework world. It's very old, but in Java world, that's still new. So we, we there is kind of this period of maturity that needs to come along. And there's certainly, we're getting a lot of interest from the kind of cool kids, you could say, that are wanting to try stuff out. And it's the long tail of the enterprises that have been around for decades is a little slower to adopt things like Quarkus. My answer is uh, when we released, within two or three days, there was a quote. It turned out to be a Red Hatter, but it was someone not even affiliated with Quarkus. It was as a surprise to them as it was to any, any, anybody else out in the public. And they said it feels both familiar and new at the same time. And so to me, that was the biggest compliment that the Quarkus team could have gotten because well, you talk about it's new, it's, right? It's the shiny bling that you know developers like to, to you know gravitate toward some new things. It brings with them a lot of the things they already know, right? So it brings with them the CDI, it brought with them the Spring, you know, compatibility APIs, which are are now, you know, there's more of them now than there were when we first launched. You know, it brings JAXRS and JPA and, and and all these things that developers already know, but it puts them in a different perspective. You know, compiling them down to a binary, live coding, you know, stuff like that. So that to me. Quarkus strikes a really good balance with being, you know, both familiar, but also being very new. It's just the best quote, I think, that I've heard out there. 
Fantastic. Can I just finish the podcast with a a kind of meta question? So a lot of people are going to be coming to this book and reading your book because the technology is new to them. And this is how they're going to start learning about it. Is learning from books like something you would particularly recommend? I know it's something that we do a lot of at Softwire. If you're if you're starting something new, you find the book, you read the book. Are there any any other things you'd recommend to kind of for people to get to grips with these technologies? For myself, uh, I'm kind of a hands-on learner. So while I love to read books, I like also like to actually try and implement what they're talking about at the same time. So for this book, I would definitely say you want to be trying out the examples, working through the code in the book, uh, rather than just sitting on the couch and reading the book. That's going to make it a lot harder to absorb. In terms of other sources, definitely like blog posts, tutorials you might find. I think Quarkus has a few workshops that some of the teams have worked on over the last year or so that it could be good to uh, play with. Like Clement has a superheroes workshop where it's like they fight uh, villains and things like that. So there, there's a few various sources there, but it's for me, uh, particularly, it's always about getting hands-on and coding to get a better understanding of how it works. Yeah, for me, I've been a long time O'Reilly, you know, Safari Books Online, you know, O'Reilly kind of customer. So I, I enjoy reading the books online. The thing that I like a lot, and I've, I've actually been an instructor in the O'Reilly live trainings, right? So I really enjoy those because you get the live interaction with whoever the expert is. So I've been on the receiving side and the delivery side of that. And then I also occasionally do UC extension trainings on Java and, you know, enterprise Java. So, and I've taken some of those courses as, as well. So for me to kind of augment books, which tend to be just, you know, more read only, although you can interact with the authors, right, through Manning, um, I enjoy kind of the, the live training experience as my personal way of consuming content as well. Yeah, and and like with everything, like a mixed approach usually like works pretty well, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your book with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, John and Ken, and thank you, Ollie. Yeah, thanks for having us, uh, Zoe and Ollie. Wonderful. 